Welcome, welcome, welcome to Studio Secrets A to Z. I'm Anthony J. Resta, your host here with the esteemed, legendary producer, Michael Beinhorn, one of the most celebrated... I, I just don't even know where to begin. I've got like 30 pages of stuff here. But welcome, Michael. I'm so excited to have you. Thanks. Nice to see you, man. It's great to... For, I'm just I'm kind of just so excited. But anyway, I'm just going to jump right in. And I, I, I always like to go back to people's childhoods um, uh, and find out like when it all started. Like when, what was the first thing you gravitated toward in, mu- in music, like as a kid? Um, well, I'm, I kind of grew up appreciating the arts in general. Like I loved music and I also loved visual art and I actually started out as an illustrator. Um, now I, I, I tried piano lessons, but uh, no one knew this at the time, but uh, I, I'm pretty sure that I had ADHD and probably still do. So <laughs> it was very hard to retain any kind of information like that. And uh, I found taking piano lessons pretty frustrating. So I didn't really follow through, but like the love of music persisted. And when I was 14, I mean, I had an obsession uh, for synthesizers. <laughs> which is an odd thing for a small for a kid to be interested in but my grandparents had a copy of Wendy Carlos's record switched on Bach which of course is like landmark and it really brought analog synthesizers to the forefront of course there weren't digital synthesizers back then but they had this record I played it and it just absolutely blew my mind so from that moment forward Anything that had to do with synthesizers was like an obsession. I was like seven when I heard it. Oh, my gosh. So, yeah, right? So uh, when I was 14, I got like a, I got a job <laughs> at Flushing Meadow Park, which was near my house, pushing a cart around the, around the uh, man-made lake there. And I parlayed all the money that I'd made, and I bought myself a, a micro Moog, which is like Moog's first... Um, into making a more affordable synthesizer like it had one oscillator it had a whole bunch of like you know basic functions on it and a function that made the single oscillator it it, there was like a a a a sine wave uh function with the uh, pulse wave that made it sound like it, it made it gave it the effect that you actually had a beating oscillator you know just by kind of like sending the pulse wave back and forth between its duty cycle, like from really thin to, to wide. And, uh, you know, so this is my synthesizer and I was just, wow. <laughs> I was just blown away. Like 14 years old, I've got this thing. And I started to realize I was kind of a hot commodity, even though I was like a kid who didn't really know how to play keyboards very well. I had a synthesizer and very few people I knew had one, excuse me. So I wound up playing in bands. That's so, that's so cool. Yeah, it is. It's kind of weird. <laughs> what were you, what were you listening to at the time? Like, what was like the, your favorite music as at that age? Do you think? Do you remember? Well, yeah, my folks played a lot of classical music, a lot of um, a lot of chamber symphonic music, um, and a little bit. My dad was into like more sort of like cool jazz, like West Coast type, type stuff. Um, he listened to like more gritty stuff too, but he didn't bring any of that home. Like we didn't have any of that stuff in the house for whatever reason. And, but my mom got into the Beatles and they started listening to that. And my dad brought home a who record and, you know, so there was like little bits and pieces. My mom refused to let the Rolling Stones be played in the house. That's hilarious. (laughs) I know. Right. (laughs) Uh, 
but I started to, I don't know how, uh, I just started to kind of go off on my own and listen to other things. Like I listened to a lot of AM radio because we didn't really have anything else. Yeah. And I remember like hearing a bunch of stuff. One song in particular that stood out was this song called Funky Worm by the Ohio Players. Oh, wow. Yeah. I don't know. So I, went out, I was obsessed with it. So I had to go out and buy it. Like I had to buy the single, right? And then for whatever reason, I mean, I, I don't even know how I matriculated into listening to like Emerson, like and Palmer, but it just sort of happened. Because <laughs> my love of synthesizers, right? And I was like, whoa, what is this? Uh, so that was super cool. And by way of that, I started reading Rolling Stone. I'm not quite sure what the connection was there. One day I'm looking through Rolling Stone. There's an article about someone named Eno. And this is like 1973. I'm like, what the hell? Like, this guy doesn't look like he, he's not presenting himself like a rock star. And there's just something very different about him. And I was like, this is interesting. Like, so based on the strength of this interview with him, which is like basically one little column on the side of a page. That's incredible. Yeah, I went out and bought his first solo record. I didn't know anything about Roxy Music at the time. And so I I go to the store and find a copy of this record, Here Come the Warm Jets, which had, which had been out for a short time. Amazing. I take it home. I put it on. And by the time I got to the end of that record, I felt like I'd taken some kind of drug. Like my life had been irrevocably altered forever. Well, that's, that's, a, and understandably so. I mean, those, those records like are just like kind of in their own plane and that must've really shaped a, a, a way, a, a path for you um, early on. Yeah. Yeah. So did you study like, like look into like what he was doing to make the sounds? Like I saw that you were into like a lot of the EMS stuff back in the day. Like, you know, he was into the VCS three a lot and the AKS. Did you start to research what Brian was using? I didn't. Actually, okay. it just didn't occur to me. I just tried. Uh, I I got my synthesizer a year after that, so I just tried to approximate what I was hearing. That's even better, really. And yeah. it's it, it kind of is like I didn't understand, and, and I don't think people really didn't. There wasn't enough information available at that time. Like you couldn't just go on the internet and go like, I "Wonder what kind of synthesizers this yeah, guy exactly. uses." Yeah, like exactly. You'd have to buy like a million circus magazines and <laughs> copies of Rolling Stones if you wanted information like that. And they would never, ever print stuff like that because they figured no one cared. And they figured that you wanted to know who the guy was, you know, what kind of pants he wore and you know, what color. he ate for breakfast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Nothing about the equipment that he used. That came, that stuff much came later. much later. Yeah. So I had no idea. I mean, I'd see pictures and go like, what the hell is that? <laughs> Unbelievable. That's like a bucket yeah. list bucket list synthesizer for me is any EMS synth. I ended up getting one of those Erica um Syntrex because it's like sort of a, a, a cheaper copy version of it. Um and What's that? it's a, this company called Erica has this Syntrex. It's like a it's a VSC three type clone with their own you know swing on it, but instead of twenty two thousand dollars, it's like three thousand dollars. It's really, really cool. That's, that's good. <laughs> yeah, but, I, I I got a synthy. You oh, know, those, I like... yeah, of course you do. Yeah. Does it have the little that the little little blue keys? Is it got the Oh little... yeah. yeah. Absolutely. I I got to play with one of those with Rick uh, Nick Rhodes a uh, uh, bunch at Privacy in London um and I fell in love with it and I had no idea that they 
how expensive they were. <laughs> get, oh man, yeah, they're unattainable at this point. But like, yeah, they're just something. I don't know. They almost have a life of their own. Like I, I used it on a, a track with them um, called Silva Halo, and it's like I had no idea what I was doing. We were, we were, we were just. It just has a life of its own. It just starts doing stuff, and you're like, what? What's going on? You know what I mean? I mean, <laughs> I haven't spent enough time with it yeah. to actually be proficient at it. So, I mean, this is a topic for like synth nerds, but I think it's mm-hmm. really, really interesting. Um, t- just tell us well, a little bit about your experience with that synth. Well, interestingly enough, um, the second experience that I had with a synth was actually one of Eno's because I worked with him and he loaned me, um, he, he, he loaned me uh, one of his. Wow. And yeah, I know, right? Crazy. I'm like, oh my God. You have to rewind. You have, <laughs> wait a minute. You got to rewind just a little bit. Hit the how, jackpot. <laughs> how, did, how did you end up hooking up with Eno? Can we just rewind a tiny bit? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, somewhere between the time that I got a synthesizer and that, um, I left home with no money and a, no G, not even a GED <laughs> to my name. <laughs> Uh, cause I left high school and everything and I just wow. sort of became a street urchin. <laughs> really? That's crazy. <laughs> More or less. Yeah. Uh, couch surfer and yeah, more or less. Uh, and I joined a band. Like I met, I had a friend in high school named Fred Moore and we just hung out and we're into, we were just really into music. And we met a guy named Cliff Coltrary who had, he managed a record store downtown called Pantasia, which was sort of like the the nexus for like prog rock and just everything like that was off the wall and super cool. And we started, Fred and I started noticing downtown, there were these like flyers all over the walls and, you know, lampposts and stuff like that. And it was basically, a, you know, are you into these bands? And on this fly, on these flyers, there's like every single pro, obscure prog rock band that we were into, just things that no one else knew about. And obviously, at that point in time, when you're so niche as far as your musical interests and, you know, in your teens and just obsessed with music, to see something like that is almost like you've been handed, like, you know, the Willy Wonka golden ticket. So... <laughs> You know, there was an address and a phone number and we called up and we showed up at this guy's house. And it turned out it was a guy named George Okomelski who had been the manager of the Yardbirds and their producer for a long time. He'd been involved in the European progressive rock scene for many years. And uh, he'd come over here, I guess, because he thought that there was like a fertile he saw that there was a fertile music scene developing. This is around 1978. And the guy who was there with them is a guy named Bill Laswell, uh, who everyone I'm sure listening is familiar with. And so we met with Bill and I think, and the idea of the flyers was to basically form a band. So we started jamming with Bill and eventually everything started to get serious. That's amazing. We started, and this band came together and at first it was called the zoo band because Giorgio had this sort of like overriding vision of, uh, of this sort of media empire that he wanted to construct, which never actually, never actually happened. Uh, so we, we were the zoo band Z U was the con was his concept. And then we broke away from Giorgio and established ourselves as material. 
and that was in 1979. Wow. And that somehow, at that point, was you started, um, you somehow met Eno and then got into the synthy. Um, yeah, I, we'd been, we started making records, and uh, Bill had actually been hunting Eno down because he was just, he was kind of, he was just gunning for him. He'd wait outside his house. He, he found out where he lived. Oh, wow. He'd wait outside his house. Yeah. And he'd just like pester him until Wonderful. Eno was like, oh, all right. And he, he let him, he played on, wound up playing on two songs on the record that Eno did with David Byrne, My Life in the Bush of Ghosts, wow. which is a classic. Yeah. It's one of the, <laughs> one of the greatest records ever, in my opinion. And, um, you know, so from there, what happened was, is that Eno was looking to, I guess, establish himself in New York. And also he wanted to make a new record with New York musicians. So he started working with Bill, our drummer, Fred, and a guitarist named Bob Quine, who played in Richard Hell. He played with Richard Hell in the Voidoids. And he was sort of like a, you know, just a local guitar hero, brilliant guitarist and a great guy. And, uh, you know, I'd been left out of the whole thing and I was really kind of like oh, bummed man. because this is my hero and everyone else is all my all the guys in my band are working with him. And, you know, they 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 were working at a recording studio in New York and then they came to our studio in Brooklyn and started working there. And I just come there every day and be upstairs like painting or, you know, doing whatever and just sitting around being depressed. And one day, you know, comes up the stairs, walks into the room and he's like, would you like to join us? <laughs> <laughs> wow. And I was like, ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. That was probably the single greatest day of my life of course. up till that moment. I can see why. That's amazing. You know? What a story. Yeah. So, so we were downstairs jamming, and uh, you know, at one point, I don't remember quite how it happened, but uh, you know, just let me borrow a synthy. <laughs> you know, and 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 you must have just been like overjoyed. I mean, just you know, patching things in with the you know, the pin matrix and just doing your, you know, going into that world. That's a. Incredible. I actually got loaned two synthes uh, about a year prior to, by someone else, a, dr a jazz drummer, drummer named Stu Martin, uh, who played with John McLaughlin. He's not a, he's not very well known now. Unfortunately, he OD'd in 1980. Oh um, man, that's sad. Just a brilliant drummer. But he'd do this thing where you have the synthes on the stage with him. This is, I've never seen anyone do anything like this before. The two synthes, the patch is all set up, and he basically just randomly go on the keyboard, set that, you know, because you, uh, you can press record, do something, and then press play, and it runs, but the digital sequencer runs by itself. He'd do that on one, he'd do it on another, and obviously it's completely random, and he'd start jamming. He'd just start improvising, playing free with the two synthes that are in no bear no relationship time-wise to one another. That's incredible. Don't sound alike. And he's somehow finding his way rhythmically through the whole thing. And to watch him do something like that was just an, ex it, it was an exercise in mastery that I'd never seen before in my life. It was extraordinary. That's like, you know, performance art at the highest level, really, if you think about total, it. Total. You know? Total. And the guy was like five feet tall too. He was an absolutely insane, red-haired, like nutcase, you wow. know? Just always like buzzing, and you know, I mean, he was small, but like he was pretty scary. <laughs> you know, to go out and do that—that's like, crazy. You're just sort of like on the edge all the time. It was amazing, really incredible. So he lent you his synthes. Yeah, he he lent me a pair of them, and you know, so by the time I got Enos, I was like, "Oh my oh, baby, 
I know these. I know how to. I know how to do this. Yeah, it was. It, it was so much fun, and it's such a great synthesizer because it's. You know, it's it's the kind of thing where you can be really advanced with synthesis or have no idea what you're doing, and eventually you're going to get something to come out of it that's going to be like, whoa. <laughs> You know, one of the questions I wanted to ask you about this is like for all the young listeners who are like in the world of VST plugins and software synths and all that stuff, how can you explain to them, um, you know, the visceral aspect of like touching hardware and what it, what's the difference? Like what, I mean, it, can you give me a little uh, thoughts on that? Like, you know. Well, the interface is relative. I mean, by now a lot of people are really familiar with moving a mouse around or having some kind of like controller surface that they're used to. And it's really, I think it just becomes a matter of preference at this point. Um, I think that if you get onto an instrument that's all knobs and patch cords and stuff like that, and you're not familiar with it, it might be very, it might be a very uncomfortable experience. I'm not sure for me, since that's how I came up the tactile experience of that and being able to turn an actual knob that's connected to a parameter that is, operational in time um relative to what the re relative to what the module or function happens to be that you're working on is it's just a really extraordinary thing i mean by the same <clears throat> excuse me token you're still working with electricity when you turn a knob on a computer i mean it's the same principle it's just a different overall effect yeah, I guess uh, it's how you, you look know. at it. Yeah. I mean, I, <clears throat> there is a latency issue, but I mean, we're talking like, you know, milliseconds. So I don't know if that's part of it, but, you know. Yeah. I think most people's brains are kind of who are familiar with that interface are kind of wired at this point through experience to just sort of deal with the latency. Um, the immediacy and the tactile experience of working with a modular synthesizer it's just a whole different level. At the same time, it's interesting how there is a niche market of people who are obsessed with analog or analog digital modular synthesizers. Oh, it's and become it's, real, it's growing. It's huge. It's become this massive movement. And I was late. Yeah. I was late to the game getting into the modular world through uh, Make Noise. They built me this really cool thing that was like a tape. Oh, nice! And uh, it's like a tape something machine thing, and and I, I you know, I, I I kind of avoided it because I got a Nord modular about ten years ago, and the manual is about an inch and a half thick, and I found myself like wasting. Yeah. Like, I found myself like wasting like eight hours like getting something worse than I started with. So I was like, I can't do this. <laughs> I can't do this on somebody else's time. It just doesn't work. Yeah, you know? yeah. So like I put, yeah. I put the thing away and I kind of like, oh, that's a rabbit hole I'm just not ready for. And then, you know, yeah. 10 years later, I started going down that rabbit hole again. And it's incredibly rewarding. I like running a guitar through it. It's just like, it's oh. endless, endless, right? Oh, it's so much fun. It's just, you can't run. The thing that's so nice about it is because everything has got an input and an output. There's just no way that you can run out of possibilities. And one of the things that was significant for me was many years after the fact, realizing this is a game that I was late to that, hey, I can stick a fuzz box in this signal path and heaven knows what's <laughs> going to happen. And I was like, wait a sec, how come I didn't think about this years ago? And I can put it anywhere in my signal chain because there's so many different component parts. And 
looky here. I can even put a device like that into a voltage chain as well because it's it's still going to output a voltage. It's just going to fuck the voltage up <laughs> in a way that, you know, the, the designer obviously didn't even think think about. You know, it's just ins and outs. It's like it's so much fun being able to explore synthesis, sound creation, and by extension recording it with that with that perspective in mind. It's another universe in, uh, upon itself, unto itself, you know? Yes. Yep. Wow. So what's some of your favorite modular gear that you've been... I know you were into Surge, I read. Um, and what's some... And Bukla, what's some of the, your favorite stuff you can... For the modular um, nerds. Yeah, man. If I had... If I had the time, <laughs> if I had the time, I would probably get a Buchla system. Uh, it's just something I've always wanted to have, but like, I just, I can't justify it at this point. And it's, it would just wind up sitting there gathering dust. And it's a very, very expensive dust gathering device. <laughs> yeah. uh, I've got, um, I've got the Synthi. Um, I've got a 46 module um, Moog system. Beautiful. Which is kind of like my baby <laughs> lovely yeah yeah uh and i'm every so often i think damn i really gotta get like a, a like a second because it's got a it's got an, a 960 sequencer in it which is like to me that's like the the the, the champagne of <laughs> of modular of modular sequencers even though it's limited in terms of function it's not digitally controlled so it's got like a crystal um clock generator internal clock generator that's really cool a, um yeah oh wait no 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 it, it needs a schmidt trigger to, to get it like the schmidt oh, wow. trigger generates the the clock um or you can use an oscillator but um uh wait does it god i haven't had the thing in years now i can't remember it's been it's been in it was in storage for so long and i had to get it service so i actually haven't turned the thing on in about like 5 years that'll be like that'll be like christmas <laughs> when you get back into it, it yeah yeah but but the thing is is that it's not precise like it's got kind of like a, a little swing? groove to yeah. it yeah it's really weird and it's very unpredictable and if you go back to like early tangerine dream well oh man yeah i guess like six records seven records in when they started experimenting with the moog system um you can hear how they timed the delay like they had a tape delay running alongside the sequencer to kind of make up you know for like the where they're adding like extra eighth notes so it's going like da -ga -da -ga -da -ga -da -ga, instead of dunk, 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 you know so they're yeah, adding yeah. extra notes to make it a 16th note pattern and um every so often you can hear the sequencer kind of going out of time with the delay and it's actually really charming it's, it's part of the <laughs> especially charm especially in hindsight it's part yeah, of the charm yeah exactly so that system's amazing uh i i have an 11 panel surge system oh my god yeah which is incredible and it's got like a pitch to voltage converter as well which is one of the rarest modules that they made and that thing is just oh god you know, get lost after that. Yeah. After that, a 2600, um, I don't think I have any other modular stuff. The 2600 is a, a, a incredible, incredible piece of machinery. It's like just oh. endless, you know? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it really is. You know, I, I wanted a Bukla for the longest time and I was saving up for a sound easel and I think they're, they're like $5,000 and I, I'd get, you know, halfway there and then I'd like, you know, my car would break down and... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I, um, I, I started, uh, 
I became friends with somebody over at Arturia, Sean Weissman, who's just this you know brilliant guy, a French um, guy who helped develop Arturia, the software company. And I got the the uh, Buchla uh, sound diesel for, for uh, on the Arturia version, and I was absolutely blown away by how how good it sounded. Yeah, it's, I mean it, they've come the... so far. They've come so far, even yeah. from three years ago to now. It's like it's totally different. Yeah, it's incredible. Uh, it's definitely a cost-effective way to be able to get into that world, and unfortunately, I think vintage equipment of any kind has become sort of like a rich man's game. Yeah, which is which is kind of which sucks. I mean, it's the reality because so much of this stuff was. You know, there weren't, there wasn't a lot in production to begin with because since of since like that have always been niche. Um, even when great big rock stars like Keith Emerson were using them, uh, yeah, it's it's you know, it's definitely the, the the landscape that we live in now. It's uh, but you know, the, it's yeah. the software alternatives are great for people to learn on and get the concepts, and yeah. then at some point in their yeah. career, they get in a certain position where they can afford to buy one and they can take it further. You know, yeah, exactly. Well, good stuff. So I was going to continue on with material as a duo, you and Bill, right? You guys ended up working yeah. with Niall Rogers, David Byrne, um, Patti LaBelle, Tony Thompson. How did all these collaborations develop? What, what was the, the catalyst, do you think, um, that set you forth in that direction? Well, we, you know, we just became a duo and we kept making records. And one of the... Uh, one of the keystone elements of our records was that we started to kind of branch out into involving other performers who didn't necessarily tour with us. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't an ensemble. It wasn't really a group. It just sort of became like a team with a bunch of, I guess, adjunct musicians, some of whom would, would come and play gigs with us from time to time and even tour with us. But it was really like a revolving door of people. And, you know, we're in New York in the 1980s at the epicenter of this amazing arts movement. And it wasn't, I mean, it was, it was kind of outrageous to get a guy like Niall to come in and play on your record. But the whole point of being an artist at that point was to kind of be outrageous. So it was like, okay, what the heck, you know, let's see, you know, let's see if he'll go for it. (laughs) You know, and, he, and he went for it, and it was, you know, it was great. It was very entertaining two nights <laughs> of having him and, you know, working with guys like Bernie Worrell, who was one of the greatest keyboardists of all time. And, uh, you know, it was really an extraordinary experience. And you were you were a sponge because you're, you're young and you're hungry and you're just like soaking it all in and just, I mean, what a wonderful time for you to just kind of blossom um, yeah, yeah, that's amazing. And, Definitely. That, and somehow that led to Herbie Hancock, which will bring us to um, Rocket, which is like, you know, so high up on the scope of musical history. I mean, let, can you go into a little bit about how Rocket happened and a little <laughs> bit about that? Yeah. Uh, Herbie had approached Bill and Fred to play on some songs for a record that he was going to work on through his assistant. Uh, a guy named Tony Myland, who was friendly with our manager at the time, this guy named Roger Trilling. And, you know, it was, it was obviously very exciting because it was going to be a, it, it was going to be a major step up playing on a record of like a really established artist, even though at that point in time, he was sort of becoming a relative non-entity at Sony. But for one reason or another, it just never materialized. Everything fell through and we all sort of moved on. 
And uh, then Fred was not not in material anymore. It was just Bill and I. And Tony came back to us again. This time he wasn't. He didn't want a rhythm section. He was like, "Look, this is Herbie's last record for Columbia, which eventually became Sony. And we're going to do it." <laughs> he didn't put it like this, but they're basically ready to do a hail mary. It was like they weren't going to have him back on on Columbia. They weren't going to renew his deal. So it was like we can do whatever we want. <laughs> and I want you guys to come up with two tracks for his next, for his next and final solo record for Columbia. And we were like, wow, <laughs> what an, <laughs> amazing, what a great, like, you know, what a great chance, you know, to do something to, you know, to do some real serious damage. I mean, at that point we were thinking really conceptually about production, like how to kind of like, you know, it, it was interesting because it was sort of like we we were kind of visualizing, like, what you could do, like how far you could go with an artist's solo record. Like for Herbie, he was this visionary keyboard player. What would happen if he hadn't tried to make these like pop records that didn't do well, and he'd stayed the course and just had been this intrepid explorer, and he somehow got introduced to this new music called hip hop. <laughs> wow. That no one else was really, yeah. That was sort of like on people's radar, but you know, it was basically looked at as more of like a novelty thing at that point in time. <laughs> wow. Sub like a subculture. Mm -hmm. It, yeah, it was. I mean, Debbie Harriet had a big hit with rapture. Yep. Um, you know, there, there was, um, the message grandmaster flashes, the message, uh, then there was Numbers by Kraftwerk, which was a, a major, major game changer for so many people, especially us. Um, and then there was there was other stuff like um, The Magnificent Seven by The Clash. Oh, yeah. Which had come out in like 82, I think. And it was sort of like the first time that a, a, a song by a rock plant band was getting played on R&B stations. You heard it all over New York City that summer. It was crazy, like nonstop. And you just felt, you could just feel this like electricity, like something was changing in the air. Like things are just sort of like changing right before your eyes. And it just felt like this is gonna, this, this music form, these, this very like rhythm and beat heavy uh, music is going to change the way we listen to and make music. Absolutely. Uh, only other one was Buffalo Gals, the Malcolm oh. McLaren record. Yeah. Um, which was viewed in the U.S. as a, as a novelty song, and because it, it was, it really was treated. Because I don't, McLaren didn't really take a lot of stuff that he did very seriously. So it was kind of like there was always sort of a a sense of it being kind of a lighthearted romp. Yeah. Uh, you know, but. Buffalo Gals had a really profound effect. Actually, it came out roughly the same time, a little bit before um, Herbie's record did. I think it was out in 83. I'm not sure. It yeah. might have been 82. I think, well, Rocket was, I think Rocket was 83, right? Rocket was 83. Yeah. It came out in July of 83. So, like, uh, at that point, like, the drum machines were really starting to you know, everybody had been using those old Roland beatboxes like the CR-78 and all those, like, you know, like, you know the SR-55, all those, like, kind of analog things that you would hear in your grandmother's organ, you know, those kind of little beat 
analog beatboxes, you know what I mean? Mm. And then your, it, life, your grandma's organ and a CR-78 <laughs> on it, that would be pretty nice. They, they had that sound that like, you know, oh, there's a, you know, it's a begin the begin or like samba or bossa nova. You That's know. The, yeah. the 78 is the one that Phil Collins used on in the air tonight. I right. Believe. And, and heart of glass too. I, I had one. I even had a yeah. little programmer for it. Some, there's so many things I regret. Such selling. a badass. Oh, such I, a I, badass piece of kit. Why did I sell uh, that? Um, anyway, <laughs> but so then yeah. the switch started happening around 82, 83 with the Lindrum and the Oberheim DMX. How did you feel like yeah. at that point? Like, did that st- Did you guys use a, a Lindrum on Rocket or a DMX? Or No, no, it was a DMX. Okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, electro hip hop had started, the, the movement had started like two years prior with Planet Rock, which is a, yet another piece of music that, that yep. I left out. Um which is super, super important because not only was it a huge hit, it basically started that movement and created a whole new pathway for hip hop music. Uh, and it was the first time that we heard the the TR-808. Wow. Excuse me, which is one of the, I mean, that's just a legendary piece of gear right there. And it's funny because like, I really am not... Um, I don't like the idea of ascribing too much value or meaning to pieces of equipment, although I've, I've gone through that phase, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but stuff like that. Iconic. It just got that sound. It's it iconic. Just got that sound. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the 808 is one of the most important mu- pieces of musical equipment or instruments ever created, you know, um, still in use the in, too. Every, everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. The thing is, is that there's a slight difference sonically between the Lindrum and the DMX. And it's one reason why I think the DMX was used more in hip hop and the Lindrum, particularly, specifically the Lindrum, to, the Lindrum 2 yep. was used more in uh, a lot of British stuff. Although like Prince used the Lindrum. Yep. Uh, but like in the hip hop and hip hop stuff, like in electro stuff, it was almost all DMX. If that, you're using a drum, that's machine. really interesting. I didn't know that. That's really, really yeah. cool. It had a different kind of attack and a different kind of feel. Like the Lindrum had kind of like it's weird. It's got more of like a. It's hard to explain. It's almost like a plodding sound to it. Yep. It's like it's weightier, but it's sort of like it doesn't have the same kind of speed to it. Like the transient response is just a. We're talking about probably like microseconds of difference. Wow. But there's something just like so. Actually, it might be the duration of the actual drum hit. I'm not really sure. Yep. Uh, you know, I know that Prince was like the first guy to experiment with the tuning. Yeah, with of the, the side stick, the side stick, like way, way down, like on when doves cry. Yeah, man, that's which a great is, sound. Which is phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when I heard that, I was like, "What is he <laughs> doing? That's incredible!" Yeah, I love it. Yeah, <laughs> it sounds like he's breaking something with it. Uh, but yeah, so I actually got this. I got a DMX. And at that time, Oberheim was selling like a whole, whole selling it with a whole system. Like you, you had to buy the the OBXA, the DX, the DSX sequencer, and the um, and the DMX together. All three. So it was a system. Yeah, this, a system that would run together. So you'd be able to run sequenced parts, and you could multi-track sequenced parts, uh, with the drum machine at the same time. And I mean, that was like, That's I've been crazy. waiting my entire life. I felt like for that. Yeah, Amazing. it was, it was nuts. Wow. Yeah, I it never was knew that. I never knew that. That's really interesting. So did you guys use that system on rocket? Or was that like, Nope. Nope. 
Okay. No, no. Uh, we started with the DMX and then uh, we weren't going to, we, we didn't start out with the idea of using any sequencing on it at all. It was just going to be free, you know, free run DMX and everyone else plays on top of it. So the sequence of events was uh, drum machine, then bass guitar. And then we added an Afro-Cuban percussionist whose name is Dan was Daniel Ponce. And uh, one of the, one of the true great um, ethnic percussionists I've ever uh, seen or heard. And he came in and did some bata drums. Initially, we were thinking maybe congas, but then we heard what the bata drums sounded like. We were like, oh shit, that's the sound that goes on. That's it. It's, that's so, it. it's so much better. Yeah, it was. We'd never really heard this sound before. Wow. And the way it matched up with the track, it just added this like this vibe that was so mysterious that's so cool <laughs> yeah it, it was just it was vibing in a way that the, the conga drum couldn't couldn't do and it was it's also a much more compact drum so the space that it occupies was so nice and tight and specific it just it just fit like a hand in a glove and it's like that's a sound that goes there i have to revisit that now with that in mind because i never i'm learning so much from this um you know yeah it's really cool it's great i mean that song took a had a life of its own it blew up so what was that like when that was i mean i don't really know the chart success and stuff like that i didn't go through the numbers and stuff but i just know that song was like i mean it was a grammy award-winning song right or, yeah 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 tell us about that i mean i just what what a thrill that was in your life and how that changed your life <laughs> well i mean I, I went from i went from being unable to pay my rent to going to going like oh wow I think I might be able to live the kind of life I would really like to live where I'm able to like buy food and afford my rent and utilities and stuff. Um, but mainly it was like the thrill of hearing a song that I'd worked on coming out of like taxi cabs and on TVs and going like, shit, I made that. Wow. That's like bizarre. And I'm like 23 years old, like going like, how did this happen? <laughs> You know, like At the highest level. They sent yeah. us, yeah. They sent us a copy of the vi of the video, like a few weeks before they dropped it to MTV. And I, MTV at this point is brand new, right? So I saw the video and I was livid because at that point in time, like I don't know if this happens to you, but when I work on a record, I have a certain vision of what it is in my in my mind's eye. Yeah, like it's not so, like you can close your eyes and see it, but you can feel it. Like yeah. it's a visceral sort of sensation. That is that you can say looks a certain way because I think it responds to a visual center of your brain. Yep. You can't necessarily quantify it. But anyway, like this video comes out, it's like this sort of like white English sort of <laughs> you I know, remember kind of quirky, jerky thing with robots. And I was like, this is Herbie's a Herbie's a black artist. Like, this is not this has nothing to do with like I mean, I saw this as kind of because it was like an, a juncture of like hip hop and jazz and, you know, and, and African music and Afro-Cuban music. And I just like these people have completely fucked up the vision of what this is. And I was just livid. I was well, like, I never want to see this piece of shit again. And then all of a sudden the video goes on to MTV and it goes straight into heavy rotation. And all of a sudden it's like the most popular thing on MTV. And I, I started to go, you know. Maybe it's not so bad after all. <laughs> Part of it was because you, you know, your history as a visual artist, you know, as a painter and all that stuff. I think maybe more than a lot of people, you, you, you develop pictures 
uh, a little stronger. Like, you know what I'm saying? So that might have been part of the, the disconnect for you, you know? Yeah, it's possible, sure. You know? Um, but yeah, I mean, it went into heavy rotation in MTV. It stayed there for a long time. They had MTV Awards, like the first MTV Awards later that year at Radio City. And Herbie was the big winner that night. He walked, went home with five awards. Jeez. Yeah, he blew everyone else off the stage. It was great, you know. And we're like, wow, wow. this is really something. And, you know, the next year he gets like, he gets a Grammy for R&B Instrumental. And, uh, Unbelievable. Yeah, it was great. So where, so that just changed your life over almost overnight. Did you end up getting management at that point and stuff like that? Is that when that started to happen? Well, a very interesting thing happened because uh, after that, um, Bill, I think, decided that material was going to be all his. And we started getting offers to produce other people's records, and I wasn't really finding out about them. Oh, man. <laughs> so all of a sudden... Uh, I'm going to say a year after we started working on Rocket, I was actually out on the street without anything. And then I discovered that not only was, was I kind of like out on the street, I also didn't have access to any of the royalties that I was going to get paid. So actually the, the hope of being able to pay my rent became a distant <laughs> a distant memory. <laughs> oh my God. Talk about the, that's the initiation into the record business. Boy. It was pretty intense. I and can't even, I can only, imagine. I also, you know, I mean, it, it was, it was an amazing life experience actually, like in hindsight, yep. I wouldn't trade it for anything. Uh, I found out that no one really knew who I was. Like everyone thought that Bill had done all the work on, on, on the record on rocket and on, on the whole of future shock pretty much by himself and with a bunch of um, other people. So I was basically forced to have to kind of pound the pavement and go to record companies. And, you know, I, I mean, I went into a serious emotional tailspin at that point. And rightfully so, I, I could see it. I didn't have very good people skills to begin with, but um, what had happened preyed on every single insecurity that I had. So I, I was reduced to kind of like this, you know, mumbling sort of, you know, uh, not very possessive self-confidence kind of guy going into up to people's offices at record companies and basically begging for work. Wow. Uh, and, you know, I, I managed through the grace of whatever to uh, land two projects over the course of like three years um, that were in Canada because no one was going to hire me in the States. Wow. And, um, yeah, so I was like scraping by by the skin of my teeth. That was a tough, then, tough time. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but it was, it was formative, you know, it was invaluable in many ways. And, uh, so one day in 1987, I take a meeting with a guy named, uh, Michael Barrackman at EMI records. And, um, he asked me if I'd ever heard of a band called the Red Hot Chili Peppers. <laughs> wow. Perfect segue. <laughs> yeah. And I didn't realize it, but at that moment, my entire life was about to do a complete 180. <laughs> wow. With that one sentence. Yeah. <laughs> Incredible. Well, tell us about it. That's, a, that's fascinating. So th that, did you end up in LA? Like give us a little bit of, you know, Reader's Digest version of that experience. <laughs> um, 
Eh, well, it's, I mean, it's a story into itself. I mean, I, I thought I'd heard of him. So I was like, yeah, sure. And, you know, he gives me a demo tape and I take it back and I listen to it and it's, it's dreadful. And I, I was just like, you know, but I started listening to it and I was like, you know, there's something here. I can't really put my finger on what it is, but it, it's cool. I mean, I think I could really do something. And I wound up speaking with their manager and I was enthusiastic. And he was like, okay, let's, you know, let's set up a meeting. And I was like, you know, why don't I meet you guys out on the road? And it was funny because like I was all of a sudden I'm getting all ballsy here and I'm like, you know, Mr. Insecure. <laughs> and <laughs> I was like, no, this would be really cool. Like it would be, it would be a great chance for them to meet me and, you know, me to see what they're about. So I hooked up with them in New Orleans. They were playing this place called Tipitina's and, you know, we hung out after the show. I mean, they were just completely off the wall nuts. Like it was so much fun hanging out with them. And I got up the next day and got, you know, got into their tour, bus, their touring van because they couldn't afford a bus back then. You know, and this van was beat to shit. It was just in such like <laughs> it was hysterical because um, getting out of Louisiana, um, the, the van broke down and they had a they had a gig to play in Dallas, Texas that oh night. Oh, my God. <laughs> so <laughs> they had the van towed to someone's farm. <laughs> And it got fixed on this farm, right? And there were all these like Cajun dudes like jumping around playing songs. This shit was like out of deliverance. I mean, except they were, they were nice and not trying to rape and kill us. <laughs> oh, that's insane. It was incredible. They were like playing music and they were all like missing limbs because they'd all like gotten their arms and, you know, thumbs caught in this threshing machine or something like that. It was just the most bizarre, like otherworldly experience. We got back in the van, made it to Dallas. I got on my flight and then I heard they loved me and they wanted me to, to work with them. That's great. So a few weeks later, I fly out to Los Angeles and within the first few minutes that I'm there, I discovered that two of the guys in the band are raging heroin addicts. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I was like, uh oh, <laughs> I mean, I didn't say anything. I didn't let it register, but I was like, uh oh, what? <laughs> and, um, it was a wild ride. That's all I can say. What a responsibility, too, as a record producer. People, you know, you're in charge of like delivering things under on time and a budget, and like keeping the you know the scope on the entire project. Uh, you must have been a little bit scared at certain points, like with that kind of responsibility and all that going on. No, no, no. I was never scared. No, and I don't really know why, <laughs> <laughs> because a normal person would have and probably should have been, but. I don't know. I got in a really weird headspace over this project and that headspace really informed me about a lot of the other work that I did. Because when I kind of, when I found something that I really could sink my teeth into, I just sort of became like a pit bull. I just, it would, my jaws would lock around it and I just wouldn't let go no matter what was happening. If there was a problem, you just dealt with it. I got, I mean, I got thrown into the deepest possible end of the pool because I was working with a band who nobody liked outside of their fans in Los Angeles. I think they may have had a very tiny following elsewhere in America. And I think they were virtually unknown in the rest of the world, but everyone in the music industry looked upon them as being a bunch of like rejects. Like just psychotic rejects <laughs> that had no 
that had no musical center, nothing to offer, nothing interesting. There was no commerciality to them whatsoever. And um, I was told at one point that EMI would not let them out of their contract because they just wanted to watch them kind of die <laughs> a slow death. <laughs> Uh, that's horrible making records that no one would buy yeah it was really sadistic actually really so i stuff like that kind of got my hackles up actually and i was kind of like fuck these guys yeah like really like we're gonna make we're gonna make a record it's gonna be really good like we're gonna see this thing through it's gonna be good come what may because these guys they it was interesting. And I think that you can still get the sense out of them. There's a kind of brotherhood there. Yep. There's like a fellowship in that band. And they had it with the first incarnation when it was, you know, Flea, Anthony, Hillel, and Jack. And obviously they have it now with Chad and John in the band. But it was like, it was kind of, it was magical. You know, there's, there's definitely a magical essence to those guys. And it was something that when you got close to it, and that was the thing that I really tapped into when I listened to their songs, even though I couldn't really say what it was until I was around them for a while. Uh, it was just something that kind of pulled me in and attracted me to it very much and made me go like, I want, I will do whatever I can to make sure that these guys have every chance possible. That's so cool. In steering the ship or helping to steer the ship with a, with a band like that, um, how involved did you get with like, you know, the transitions and the, the flow of the songs, like the arrangements, breakdowns, outros, you were really kind of involved from, from the, from a song doctor, uh, point as well. Pretty much everything, Yeah, you know, from the ground up. Um, a lot of their songs had a very specific approach to rhythm. One of the things that they did, and it's something that I've heard a lot of other people do, is that they often grab the set, like the bass drum and, the, and the, the bass guitar will grab a lot of the same accents. And I find that when people do that, instead of kind of having the bass and the, and the, the kick drum operate more independently of one another, so that there's more of like a forward motion, is that it actually slows the momentum of a song down. So... We did a lot of work on stuff like that, like revising some of the drum beats, revising you know the rhythm section approach overall, working on um, work, working on, on on building the songs out, extrapolating on the ideas, you know, so that things didn't run on so much because there was also a tendency that they'd have to kind of to drag things out. One thing I noticed about them though is that if I ever brought a suggestion, like eighty. 80 to 85 percent of the time they'd usually counter with something that was better than what i came to them with well that's which modest was fun yeah that's cool well, well no yeah. i mean it's i i'm i'm gonna take credit for having for having presented to them of course yeah the 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 the, the idea that there there's an issue at this point go. in the song that needs sense. to be addressed here's what i think that you should here's what i think you should try you know and sometimes they'd adopt what i you know what I'd suggest, but a lot of the time they, they'd be like, hold on, hold on. And they, you know, Flea and Hillel would kind of go off in a corner and work something else out and they'd start playing it. And they'd be like, yeah. And I'd be like, wow, that's actually better than what I thought of. That's, 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 <laughs> that's a great chemistry. You know, that's really, really cool. It was, yeah, it was wonderful. It was a lot of fun. Uh, and, 
you know, that's the, the record really came together like that. But we, yeah, we were in a rehearsal studio for a very long time working on that. I, I love that part of being a producer. I mean, back in the day, you know, I go back, I started like in the you know late eighties, early nineties, you know, sweating in those band rooms with no air conditioning and, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just the, the whole, yep. the whole experience, you know, it's one of the things I feel like I miss sometimes in modern record production because now everybody has the attitude that's like, oh, we can change the kick pattern whenever we want. You know, it's like nobody makes decisions. I think a lot of people, you know, we get, you know, I'm sure you've, I don't know if you've gotten these sessions with like 200 plus tracks and nobody's made a decision along the way. The lead vocal, every line is on a different track going at an angle all the way down. It's just like, there's a whole different mentality with people um, making records now. Um, and I feel like, well, you know, I don't make records like that anymore anyway. Yeah. I mean, I haven't, I haven't actually worked in a recording studio since 2016. So uh, wow, that's yeah. really interesting. So, like, so you do a lot of long distance like uh, collaborations with people, like over. I work remotely. I mean, basically, what I'm doing now is more, I guess you could say, consulting. But yep. I'm trying to. I'm. I'm basically providing aspect like the I, what I think to be the most important aspects of music production in a way that's affordable for for people for at, at every possible level because. I, I've seen how even the smallest bit of information for an artist who would have never, ever been able to get any kind of input, hire like a professional producer to look at their stuff, uh, how much that means and how much that can completely change a person's, an artist's point of view to Absolutely. their music. Absolutely. Like yeah. revise it almost 180 degrees. I mean, it, it's, I, in some cases, like some of the services that I offer really kind of provide very basic, like um, flesh and bones type breakdown of stuff, like not going into great detail because it's more of an economical thing based on what what the service is yep. and how, how much a person can actually afford. But I find even with stuff like this, people come back and be like, oh, my God, I can't believe you've just completely cracked the code of this song for me. That's wonderful. You know, that's a good feeling. Not, which is, yeah, which is not, well, I mean, I'm not saying that that's a testament to how good I am at what I do, but it's really, it's, I think it demonstrates the value and the efficacy of being able to provide just a tiny bit of really valuable feedback to an artist, what that can mean to them. Yeah. And, you know, when we were making records back in the 90s and stuff with, you know, when you had to commit to tape and it was usually two 24 tracks at the max and then one of them was time code i mean you had to make decisions you know you had to bounce the background vocals to a stereo pair you had to you know so i think people need need to think further ahead i think a lot of the a lot of the time i mean i guess i don't want to sound like the old dude but i think there's a lot of there's there's a lot of good things about making decisions as you go because then you know things take their own shape and their own form and then they stay intact if everything's in tiny millions of tiny pieces, it's really hard to put together the end result, you know, in my experience. Well, yeah, I I agree with that. Uh, and that, I mean, that to me, that's part of creating the essence of the sonic identity of a recording as well. Absolutely. Because what you do from foundationally and what you put on top of that and so on and so on really informs what the record is going to be, how it's going to present to other people and how it's going to connect with them. So if you're not making those decisions as you go and leave so much up in the air for someone else to, you know, someone else to clean this mess up for me, uh, you know, you're not really, you're, you're doing, 
yourself a disservice. You're doing the mixer a disservice. You're doing the artist a disservice. You're doing the, the audience who's going to hear the record a disservice as well. That's really eloquently put, you know, in a nice way. And I think people, I, this is one of the things I love about the podcast is this kind of information can really help people, you know, moving forward, you know? Yeah. Uh, and yeah. We, so let's just jump into Mother's Milk after, you know, the first record was a six, you know, pretty much a success, right? Um, 87, was that the first album you worked on with them? Was yeah, it, it was the Uplift Mofo yeah. Party Plan. They came yeah. out in 80, was it 87? 87, Yeah, it was 87. And then, uh, yeah, okay. And that record... You know, I mean, their previous records had all sold like maybe 20, 30,000 copies. This one sold like 60,000 and they were getting like press and, you know, in, in a lot of international music papers and people were starting to go, wait, what is this? And EMI were kind of like, hold on. A wait second. a minute. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, we might have something with these guys after all. So all of a sudden they're rolling out the red carpet, you know, from the next record and, you know, the president of the record company shows up at the studio, you know, where's Flea? <laughs> you guys are sounding and, fresh no. <laughs> yeah right <laughs> so and all of a sudden yeah. they've they've got real equipment to play through so yeah we you know we're in the studio and obviously there's a new guitarist in the band and a new drummer and that really kind of that set the stage for everything that they did going forward so 1989 you guys jumped into the studio to work on mother's milk which is arguably one of the most you know highly respected rock rock records of all time um what can you tell me a little bit about that process and like the the result what was the 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 difference between the the two albums well uh for one thing there's a whole new band on that record and obviously it doesn't i don't i wouldn't say that they were breaking in john probably more so than chad i mean chad could just come in and play his ass off and leave like it was very easy for him to to put his tracks down but really the whole process of making the record was kind of finding an identity for, you know, for John and how the guitar was going to work. And unfortunately, Flea and Anthony were kind of in a, they were in sort of like a feud while we were making that record. And uh, there wasn't the same kind of uh, brotherhood. There wasn't the same kind of, there wasn't the same kind of sense of, of community on that record as there was on Mother's Mill, as on Uplift. I see. And a lot of the project was really me and John kind of stuck in our, an overdub room, kind of cutting guitars. And wow. we didn't, we had a really brief time frame in which to work. So the other guys didn't even show up. So I was kind of like, I'm kind of out in the weeds here. Like, I don't know, I don't know how this is gonna go down with everybody. Cause we were getting these really kind of crunchy, like harder sounds for a lot of the songs. And I remember Anthony coming in finally after weeks of overdubbing and going like, you know, he heard some of the songs and he was like, I think this sucks or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> we're like, Ouch. we're almost done with guitar overdubs. And I was kind of like, well, you weren't, you weren't here uh, for any of this. Like we wanted you guys to come in and like, there was no, you know, there, there, no one was like saying anything to the contrary. So we just kind of went with what we had. And, you know, so we had to finish the record. And I think everyone left with like not such a great taste in their mouths. But, you know, it was it was done. The record came out and I was at a particularly rough point in my life. You know, I, I was uh, not making a whole lot of money. Whatever I'd made off that record had been spent. I had problems with the IRS. <laughs> and been I was there. just trying yep. to keep, 
I was trying to keep my life together at that yeah. point, you know, just sort of like wondering what the hell am I going to do now? <laughs> you know, and all of a sudden this record comes out and I, I didn't know because no one had reached out at that point. I did have management and all of a sudden I discovered that this record that I produced was the hottest record at the management company. And they were representing everybody. Like they, they represented this guy, Ron Nevison, who was at the, at that point kind of like the top of the heat for like rock producers. And was that, was that Lippman? You know, just, was, was that Lippman? Yeah. Lippman. Yeah. Cause I, yeah, it was Lippman. I, yeah. I, I worked with them for a number of years, Kathy and I, and so it's funny. Yeah. yeah Kathy was my manager. Uh, she was yeah. my manager too, for about a dozen years. That's a small world. That's so funny. She's yep. amazing. I love yeah, her. It is. Wow. Yeah, she is. Yeah, she really was good. She's fantastic. Uh, yeah. All of a sudden, I'm like, "Holy shit! This record is like got a life of its own. It might actually, it might actually get big." And they're like, "Oh man, you know," because I was, I, I contacted them saying, uh, "Can you get me a copy of this record for me?" And they're like, "We're out." I was like, "You're out? What do you mean you're out?" They're like, "Yeah, we don't have any more. We've run out." It's like, <laughs> I produced it. And they're like, "Well, everyone wanted a copy of it, so we gave, <laughs> we gave them." They've gone through like a stack, like a mass, like a box of CDs, right? Yeah. And I was like, "Well, I guess that's good." <laughs> I guess. <laughs> and the record comes out, you know, it hits the Billboard charts at fifty-two, which was like a massive leap. I mean, the first one that I did had actually hit the Billboard charts as well, but I think it was like one in the one seventies or one eighties, yeah. you know, and it just kind of was there for a week and just went gone. But this one was like, it was there and it stayed. And the first song did did really, really well. And I was like, holy crap. And then the, higher, the version of Higher Ground that we did came out. And all of a sudden, it's all over the place. And I was like, oh, crap. Amazing. This is actually doing well. I'm... I'm, I might actually see some money this time, finally, and be able to pay my rent like I was hoping to do three years ago, four years ago. <laughs> oh, that's really a great story, man. That's, that's just yeah. incredible. Okay, guys, there's a wrap for episode one. And please tune in next time for uh, episode two, where we go into Soundgarden and all these other incredible um, things that Michael's been a part of. So we'll see you next time on Studio Secrets A to Z. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett.
Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.